I'd like to welcome you to um, our Wednesday edition of Shepherd's Chapel. We are in the book of Acts. I'll invite your attention to Acts chapter 8. We began there last week with regard to Saul um, being the great persecutor of the church. He was, as it were, the the ringleader. And what was interesting, as is often the case throughout the ages, is while Satan and those that Satan uses intend, intend harm, to God's people, God often uh, not only comes to the rescue, but surprises us with how he chooses to rescue his people. So we're introduced to Saul. Saul later will become the Apostle Paul, but there's some things that will have to happen between where we meet him in Acts chapter 7, actually, to his conversion a little bit later, and then subsequently how he's used by God to write a good deal of the New Testament. Let's take a moment, though, and ask God's blessing upon our time together. Father, we thank you for another time that we're able to be here with one another. And we ask that you would guide our understanding for your glory and for our good. We pray that the influence of Shepherd's Chapel will increase not only here in the North Wales area, but as the word goes forth to others, whether it be on YouTube or Spotify, or simply by word of mouth, Lord, um, may we be known here as a, a small group of believers that really have our hope and trust in you and that our goal is that you would be our teacher that our lives would be made in the image more and more of our great savior jesus and that as a result of that glory and honor would come increasingly to your name we pray these things in his name amen well Where we left off last week, we were talking about how Saul was ravaging the church, the Holy Spirit says, and a little bit later in that same book, if you want to turn over to Acts 21, Paul is actually quite specific as to what took place. He is given an opportunity to defend himself when he's called on the carpet for speaking the truth of the gospel. He's been arrested, and now in speaking his defense in Acts 22, he says these words. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. 
I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can hear me, hear, bear me witness. The way are the people of God. They are not commonly known as Christians back then. It is the followers of the way. In fact, the term Christian is first used in the first century in the town of Antioch. But prior to that, it was simply individuals who were the followers of Jesus. And it's kind of like a ragtag group. I mean, it is really not an organized group. You know, we look at organized religion today. We see churches, if you go into any town, there are a number of church buildings. And all of those church buildings, many of them have membership made up of people who regularly attend, associate with, um, financially support, and so on and so forth. You don't have that in the first century. For the most part, keep in mind, Roman Empire, generally speaking, the Christians are meeting, for the most part, in secret. Why? Because the Caesars were regarded as gods, and as such, they were expected to be worshipped, and it was not something that, um, unlike other religions where other religions would say, well, we'll do our worship of our gods, but we can also worship Caesar as well. The Christians would have said, we bow to no one but Christ. And that would have been a problem for you if you were a Christian back then. So as a result, if you got together with the people of God on the Lord's Day, which was what we call our Sunday, generally speaking, it would probably have been in secret maybe for a specified period of time, maybe not. My guess, though, it was probably more extended time than when we meet. Oftentimes, people were coming distances. People were having meals together. It might have been a whole day thing into the evening. Again, people are going to their homes by nighttime. There's not street lights. People don't have flashlights. So the days were pretty much set up that people did things during the day, but at nighttime he wanted to be home. But that's who we're talking about when we're saying the, the way, the followers of the way. <clears throat> and Paul is giving witness here and saying that, I'm not just saying this off the top of my head, as a matter of fact, the high priest and the elders knew exactly what I was doing. I was working at their behest. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed, to, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. How would they have been punished? More often than not, put on trial by the Jews, bound, and if the Jews could trump up charges against them, possibly executed. Again, they would have had to have the permission of the Roman government to do so. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and then he heard a voice. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then the voice identifies himself as none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he said, go to Damascus, and there he's appointed a man. That man is going to be Ananias, and Ananias, when he hears, uh, when Saul, Paul hears his voice, rather, that the blindness that had beset him, uh, all of a sudden his eyes are open. Ananias shares with him the gospel. Presumably then Paul becomes a Christian. But keep in mind, this is on the heels of him doing what? Him having an interest in destroying the church. It's not simply him saying to people, listen, you, you, you can't be talking like that against Judaism. You can't be talking like that against our God, our, our temple, our way of life, our law. Rather, if you do this, we're going to kill you. You remember Stephen? We killed him. We'll do the same thing to you. There is an interest in creating fear so people will stop what they're doing. And as a result, what does God do? God uses this as part of the beginning of the persecution to scatter the people. And in the scattering of the people, what happens? Let's just imagine it here. John's part of the group. John says, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of town. And he goes, and where does he go? He goes to maybe not just the next town over, but maybe five towns over. But he takes with him family and friends and the message of the truth. That had that not happened, that town five towns over might not have heard the truth. You see, again, God is not interested in uh, us learning the Bible and then we just keep it to ourselves. God is interested in us learning the Bible, the Bible transforming our lives. And then if you're really serious about what it is you're learning, Understand and begin to think like this. If what Pastor Bill is teaching us in the Bible, that we need Jesus to be saved and have a right relationship with God, and if we don't, then God is going to bring down the hammer, as it were, bring down his anger against us and cast us into hell. So if those things that he's sharing with us are true, they would not only be true simply for us, but they would be true for anybody that we care about, right? I mean, again, imagine for a moment, if we can use this particular metaphor, that you are in a burning building, and somebody comes into the burning building, and you're just beside yourself. You're, you're, you're hysterical. All you want to do is get out safely. And the person says, I can get us out safely. I, that's all I want to know, right? I want to get out of the burning building. 
How are we going to get out? The exit is right down here around the corner. And then you say, if that's the case, there are other people in this building, and I, and I think we probably have time, that we need to go tell them too. You see, we need to think of the gospel like that. We need to think of the gospel like this. If this is true, then it's true for every human being. And if it's true for every human being, then every human being needs to hear it and believe it. Because if they don't, the day is coming. And it's coming quickly. The seconds will run out. I mean, the older I get, the more I'm struck with my own mortality. I'll be 68 years old next month. Here's my reality. You know, when, when somebody says to me, and it's usually my wife, because my wife is younger than me, but she'll say something like, what about, you know, what we're going to be doing 10, 15, 20 years from now? And I'll say something like this back to her. 10 years, I'm probably good. 20 years, honey, I'm going to be gone. And she's like, oh, she's horrified at that. And to which I remind her, and I say, 20 years from now, I'm going to be 88. I mean, literally, I can count, I think I can count, on two hands, no more than two hands, of all of the people that I've known personally that have lived beyond 88. I mean, I've known other people or heard of other people living into their 90s or, or even 100, but I'm talking about personal personal people, friends, relatives, no more than two hands in my entire life of 68 years that have lived that long. So I'm not thinking I'm living another 20. If God gives me another 10, 15, that would be wonderful. You know, when my brother passed away in his late 50s, you know, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know if I was going to make 60. And then 60 gave way to 65, and now 68, right around the corner. But the point is, time is running out for every human being. And they need to know the gospel now. They need to know the gospel while there's still time. Because the Bible says it's appointed unto mankind once to die, and after that, the judgment. There's no second chance. There's no purgatory. There's no reincarnation. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Well, Let's move on. We need to be concerned about sharing the gospel. And God wanted it to move off center from Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea and the other, other most parts of the world. 
And I can't imagine that when the persecutions were happening, that the people, the, the believers in Jerusalem, were thrilled at the prospect of, look at what's happening. People are getting beat up. People are getting taken prisoner. And, and some are dying. And yet, that was the means, a primary means, that God was going to spread things out. Spread things out. He was going to use the persecution of the early church to get people out of Jerusalem and into Samaria and Judea and the other uttermost parts of the world. One individual, for example, the individual that we know as Doubting Thomas, became known as the apostle to the land of India. India, for the most part, today, is Hindu as a religion. But there's still a tremendous Christian influence in the country of India. Certainly one of the largest countries in the world in terms of population. About 1.3 billion people. More than or about four times the, the number of people in the United States. As a result of the influence, at least initial influence, of the Apostle Thomas. Suppose Thomas never would have gone to India. Suppose he just would have hung out in Jerusalem. You get the point. <clears throat> well, one of the individuals that was of great influence that we touched on last week was a man by the name of Philip. Philip was one of the six that were introduced to earlier in the book of Acts when the widows were needing uh, people to care for them, and I won't elaborate on that, other than to say as a result of his direct uh, involvement and association with the apostles, one of the things that he's given is some of the gifts of the Spirit that God is using for him then to speak and have those words authenticated by the signs that he was allowed to perform. It says in verse 6, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So it wasn't simply a matter of him saying, Thus saith the Lord, or let me share with you some of the things that Jesus taught me. It was him speaking those things, and if someone needed to be healed, he healed them. If someone was possessed by a demon, he cast out the demon. And in so doing, those words then that he was speaking were authenticated by some of the signs that he was doing in some of the same ways that Jesus was performing miracles, not to create a magic show, not simply to get people's attention, but simply to authenticate that when he said, I come from the Father, well, it's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to say it. And when he said, I come from the Father, and people are bringing their sick, and the sick are healed, all of a sudden his words have credence to them. Unclean spirits, 
crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were baptized or lame were healed. There was much joy in the city. Now we come up to an individual that's a curiosity for us. He's a curiosity for a couple of reasons. His name is Simon. Simon was a common name back then, just like John was a common name back then. Paul was a common name back then. David, mostly common among the Jewish people. Bill was not a common name back then. Just wasn't. I don't see any Georges in the Bible. I don't see any Bills. I don't see any Barrys. But there were certain names that were common. Simon was a common name. And here's this individual. His name is Simon. And it says that he practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. The interesting thing that we're not told here is whether this, and I'm just going to say it and then I'll explain it, whether this magic was for real or whether this magic was for show, that he was just a good showman. And my guess is that it was probably the former and not the latter, that the magic was probably for real. Now again, I have said this to this group before, and I've preached and used it as an illustration before. I like magic that you tune into TV. I like watching, you know, the David Copperfields of the world doing their stuff, you know, taking a person and sawing them in half, you know, making a person appear, you know, from one end of an auditorium to the other in an instant, replacing a person with, a, with a, a wild animal in a cage in an instant. I'm always trying to figure that stuff out. And the fact that they just continue to fool me, I just love it. I could watch it all the time. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, I think, real satanic, demonic power that some people in history have had and displayed. And I think this is one of them. In the same way that in the Old Testament, you remember when Moses goes with his brother Aaron and they go calling to the court of Pharaoh. And Moses has been given certain things to display to Pharaoh. One was the situation where uh, Aaron would put his hand into his garment and pull out his hand, and the hand would be leprous, full of leprosy. Then he'd put his hand back in the garment, and it'd come out, and what would happen? No more leprosy. Moses had a staff, okay, big cane. Throw it on the ground, what happened? Became a snake. And interestingly, when he's doing that in front of Pharaoh, again, the purpose of those things wasn't to get 
Farrah's attention for Farrah to go, ooh, and ah, and that's pretty neat, and yeah, I'll let your people go. It wasn't that. It was, I want you to understand, Farrah, this is not something that I'm doing on my own, but rather God has given me the power to do this. But interestingly, in, it's either Exodus 5 or 6, when that happens and he takes a staff and he throws it on the ground and it becomes a snake, it says the court magicians took their staffs and also threw them on the ground and they became snakes. Now, Moses is doing it by the power of God. They were not. They were not. They were not ambassadors of the Most High God. So how would they have been doing it? Well, there's really only two sources of great power like that in the world. And one is God and his almighty power. But the other one is Satan and his ability to do things and affect things in a way that you and I can't. And you look in the narrative there, and what's interesting is that Moses' snake did what? Ate up the other snakes. But the point is, it was not some Las Vegas carnival act, magic show. This was real stuff happening supernaturally. And here's an individual who's known in this territory of Samaria and people are amazed at him. And it says, verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed that Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And then listen. Listen carefully. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, here's what's interesting about this passage. A few weeks ago, I was talking to our group at church. And I was referring to the passage in John chapter 8 about the Jews who had believed in Jesus. And by the end of the chapter, they are the Jews that want to kill Jesus. Here, we have an individual, listen carefully, we have an individual who, as we're initially introduced to him, says, Philip is speaking the gospel, and Simon, along with the crowd, it says, believed also. And not only did he believe, but just as they, the crowd, is baptized, Simon is also baptized. Stay with me on this. But at some point, a little bit later, and let me just continue in the narrative and, and, and you'll see the point. 
uh, let me read again verse 13 and following. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So presumably, it, he wants to be a disciple of Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who had come down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit is directly connected with the apostles. The apostles, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are able somehow to pass on that miraculous working power to others, one of which they've done so with Philip. And now, the apostles in Jerusalem send Peter and John to come down and to pray for the people here in Samaria so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So there's a definite connection between the passing of the gift of the Holy Spirit in connection with the apostles. Everybody again with me on this? Verse 16, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, that is the Holy Spirit, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what we're not told here. In Acts chapter 2, it says that when people receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, one of the things that was significant was there would be flames or tongues of fire above their heads. And that's how it was indicated there that the Holy Spirit was being given to these individuals. We're not told here what exactly took place. It simply says in verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, What's he do? He wants to buy whatever it is they're giving out. He wants to buy. He wants to exchange money. Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You guys come to town. You have the Holy Spirit. I don't know how this works. I have money, can I buy in? Notice the apostles' reaction. They don't just take him aside and say, no, 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 that's, you, you don't understand. This is not how this works. They're incensed. They're incensed. <clears throat> Peter said to him, verse 20, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. 
And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, what's going on? We're not told exactly. Other than the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John, who have come, are baptizing these folks with the Holy Spirit. Simon, for his part, wants some of this. However this works, he's willing to pay for it. The apostles are somehow able to discern that there is wicked motives on his part, greedy motives on his part, perhaps, but anti-God motives on his part, that they're calling him on it and saying, no, 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 you need to understand what you are saying, what you are asking for here is evil, and you need to repent of that evil, and perhaps God will forgive you in your repentance. That's what's going on. How all that's playing out, we're not told. We're not given the specificity here that perhaps we want, but we need to understand that how does Simon react? I think Simon reacts in a humble way, in a repenting way, in a healthy, godly, fearful way. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. He's not callous. He doesn't persist. He's not asking for, wait a minute, you know, tell me the amount and I'll triple it. None of that. None of that whatsoever. He hears what they're saying, and it seems to me that he's willing, in fact, to repent and willing to do whatever it is that it would take to make himself right with God. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. We'll end here today. Lord willing, we'll pick up with another episode in the life of Philip where we're only told about this episode and this individual once, where he meets a man known as the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch becomes converted, and then Philip miraculously and supernaturally leaves the scene, and we're not told anything ever again about the Ethiopian eunuch. But more of that, Lord willing, next week. Thank you.